Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we're very glad you all are here. I extend a special welcome to those of you visiting with us for the first time this morning. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I ask you to greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left, welcoming them here this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light our chalice. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. The call to worship this morning is by Olympia Brown. Dear friends, stand by this faith. Work for it and sacrifice for it. There is nothing in all the world so important to you as to be loyal to this faith, which has placed before you the loftiest ideals, which has comforted you in sorrow, strengthened you for noble duty, and made the world beautiful for you. Do not demand immediate results, but rejoice that you are worthy to be entrusted with this message and rejoice that you are strong enough to work for a great true principle without counting the cost. Go on finding ever new applications of these truths and new enjoyments in their contemplation. I run into questions a lot. I'm not sure if you do yet or not, but uh, people wonder. You call yourselves Unitarian Universalists, right? And you're all the same faith, except some of you have roots that you celebrate in the Christian tradition and some in the Buddhist tradition, some in the Hindu tradition, the earth-based traditions, the humanist traditions. What holds you together? And I like to say one of the things that holds this congregation together is our mission, and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. The meditation reading this morning is also by Olympia Brown, written 130 years ago. Every nation must learn that the people of all nations are children of God and must share the wealth of the world. You may say this is impracticable, far away, can never be accomplished, but it is the work we are appointed to do. Sometime, some. How, somewhere, we must ever teach this great lesson. This is the time in our service where we breathe deeply together. Where we breathe into that place in our heart where we are who we are. Where we can speak to God as we understand God. Listen to our inner wisdom or just find a stillness. 
It is this rare stillness that can bring us clarity and wisdom. We open our hearts to those who are suffering. We bring them into this sacred space with us. We open our hearts to those who are ill, those who are afraid, those who are in harm's way because of war or natural disaster. We hold in our hearts especially the people of the Philippines, the people of Syria. We ask for the wisdom to know what to do, how to help, how to alleviate the suffering in the world, and how to add to the joy. You are invited to light candles of joy, sorrow, and remembrance. Let us continue our meditation by saying the Buddhist meta-meditation or loving-kindness prayer together. We say it three times. I'll say a line and you say it after me, if you choose to. The first time through, this is for ourselves. May I be free from danger. May I be mentally happy. May I be physically happy. May I have ease of well-being. The second time, we say it for somebody we love. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. Now the third time is a spiritual exercise. We say it for someone against whom we have a resentment. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. May it be so. In the newsletter column that's about to come out next week, I wrote about the dark time of the year, or the fall and winter time, as being the time when plants pay attention to their roots in the longer nights, in the cooler temperatures, the better for root growth. And so I thought it might be good for us to pay attention to our roots as well this fall. And this is one of the sermons about our our roots as Unitarian Universalists. One of the sources that we draw from, on, online you'll see the UU principles, which are seven, and the UU sources, which are six. And one of the sources that we draw from are the words and deeds of prophetic women and men, which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil 
with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. It sounds very ba-ba-ba-ba, and I like that. It doesn't always work that way. This sermon is more about how it actually works, usually on a day-to-day kind of basis. I'm going to tell you about the Iowa Sisterhood. Now, the Iowa Sisterhood was um, a group, a loosely affiliated group of 20 to 25 women in the latter part of the 1800s. And they were ministers in the Midwestern Unitarian Churches, the Western Unitarian Conference. Back then, they called it the American Unitarian Association. Um, we call it the Unitarian Universalist Association today because organizations, in order to try to be interesting to themselves, I guess, keep changing their acronyms. Today, half the ministers are women, but this was not always the case. The Iowa Sisterhood were the second wave of women who were ordained into denominations, and they were big admirers of Olympia Brown, whose words you heard in the call to worship. She was one of the first women ordained, um, the first by a denomination, the Universalists. Antoinette Brown Blackwell was um, uh, the first woman ordained by an individual church. So those two women were in the very early 1800s, and they were the heroes of uh, these women. So these Iowa Sisterhood women decided that they thought churches should look like homes. So from Iowa to Colorado, there are lots of Unitarian churches that look like houses. And even in the church, they would have a fireplace to make it seem more like home. So sometimes if you're traveling and you go to a Unitarian church somewhere else, you'll find a fireplace in the foyer because these were Iowa Sisterhood churches. And the women there um, decided that they were going to be kind of uh, mothers of their churches. They, they did not get married, and they worked very hard. And um, the most famous among them uh, dropped like flies from exhaustion. They preached a radical theology that would even be radical in churches today. They poured their lives out for the cause of liberal religion and women's suffrage. They read William Ellery Channing. They read Ralph Waldo Emerson and Theodore Parker. And their heroes were Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, Olympia Brown, and Antoinette Brown Blackwell. The first of these women were ordained around 1852. So there's a book about them called Prophetic Sisterhood, and it talks about two of them in particular, Mary Stafford and Eleanor Gordon, and they uh, grew up on farms in Iowa, near Humboldt, Iowa. Um, I'm from the East Coast, so I have no idea where Humboldt, Iowa is, but some of y'all may. And um, their farms were near each other, and so they were friends from childhood. They would um, uh, take walks in the fields, and they would uh, read together and discuss together. And they sat under an apple tree together and made a vow that they were going to work together to change the world and make it a better place. So that was a vow they made when they were very young girls. 
Um, they had help. This is the first thing. If you want to change the world, it's good to have partners in crime. You know? I remember when they sent the first um, woman to the Citadel, which is a, a military academy in Charleston, South Carolina. And they were not smart. They didn't read history because they sent her by herself. She just was one woman in a sea of other male cadets. And she went through hell because there was nobody with her. A lot of times in the South, and I don't know if this happened in Texas, but when they would integrate a school, they would send in one black kid. One. It's terribly difficult, but if you have two, it's much better. The other thing you need, more than partners in crime, is you need a helper. You need somebody who already has status to use their status as, as an ally for you. And so these two women had a Unitarian minister named Oscar Clute. He was already a minister. He already had a church. And he helped them organize a church in Hamilton, Iowa. And the success of that church attracted the attention of an even bigger ally, Franklin Lloyd Jones. He had a big status in the Unitarian Association at that time, but he was a radical, and he was also a big pain in the neck to the Unitarian Association at that time. Um, He was the secretary of the Western Unitarian Conference then. And the reason he was a pain to them, the reason he was a radical, the issue on which he was a radical was how Christian was the Unitarian Conference going to be? How was it going to define itself? And this is an issue that comes up in Unitarian Universalism in a cyclical kind of way. Are we going to define ourselves as broadly Christian or liberal Christians? Or are we going to say, no, we are something different. We're something else, something other than liberal Christian. And Jones was of the something other camp. He felt that labeling Unitarianism as broadly Christian was too limiting and that free religion was the best thing that the Unitarians had to offer and that that would attract way more people than a broadly Christian religion. He said if you want you know, broadly Christian church, you can have, find one on every street corner, but you cannot find one that is Unitarian. He also felt with Eleanor and Mary that uh, defining the church as Unitarian rather than as broadly Christian would be easier on the women, would be better for the women. So um, his influence was very, very helpful to Mary Gordon, Mary, um, uh, now I'm blanking on her name, and Eleanor Gordon, and um, until he was thrown out. So they had kind of hitched their wagon to his star, and then his star went out. So they were in a little bit of trouble. But before he left, he offered um, Mary Stafford, that's her name, the pastorate of the church that they had organized in Humboldt, Iowa. She was going to be pastor of that church by herself. This is just about the time when um, 
electric lights were coming to all the cities and all the houses. This is uh, the mid to late 1800s. Gordon, uh, Eleanor Gordon, wanted to live with Mary Stafford, and so Gordon became principal of the school in that town. So she and Stafford were able to work, still stay working in tandem. Uh, no, we don't speculate on their relationship. We think they were just friends. We don't know. Um, they might have had what was called in that time a Boston marriage, where two unmarried women decide to set up household together. Um, no one asked, see, at that time what they did when the doors were closed. So we'll draw a velvet curtain over that part. Um, Eleanor, as principal, got into some trouble because some of the non-Unitarian members of the school board um, got a whiff of the fact that she was kind of pro-evolution. And in her school, that she might be friendly to the teaching of evolution. And they called her on the carpet um, for telling her physiology class that the opposable thumb made possible all the arts of civilization. Asked to explain her position by a board member, she challenged him to have both of his thumbs immobilized for 24 hours, and then they would talk. (laughs) He did not take her up on that, and the matter was dropped. After a few years, she became discontented with education, and she also went to do studies as a minister. So um, she and Mary Stafford ministered in churches together throughout the Midwest and brought many young women um, into the ministry and mentored many other young women who were interested in education or doing other things other than ministry. They also helped these young women with money. So they were, they were like uh, the Johnny Appleseed of women ministers. They, were, they helped a lot of women get through school and get started. Um, and they told the women that, they, that if they wanted to be ministers, they should not get married because you were married to your church and you needed all that energy to do the work of the church. Um, partly, the women succeeded at that time because they feminized the ministry so much in, the, in that they talked about it as being very motherly and they talked about it as building a home for their people and they had the fireplaces and um, they, they uh, made good homes for the family of church. And they talked to them about how um, your character was developed, not just by being an individual good person, but by being a person who practiced being in community, and that your community would help you like your family did, and your community would support you like your family should, and your community would teach you like your family ought to. And um, if the concept made the ministry less attractive to men by painting it as religious housewifery, um, it made it more attractive or more open to the women in that... um, part of the country. 
So, for several decades in the Western Unitarian Conference, um, this crisis, this tension between the people who thought it should be broadly Christian or not Christian um, was developing. And, uh, And Jones and the women felt that there should not be a copyright on the word Unitarian and that they should be able to use it too. And they just declared that Unitarian was going to be non, not necessarily Christian, but broadly ethical and interested in many other religions and interested in the development of humanity and character. And they took over the Western Unitarian Conference and these women held every position in the Western Unitarian Conference, including um, president. Along with their religious voice, many of the women were finding their political voice as well, working for women's suffrage. Um, They had all the typical tensions that any group working for political change does. What are those tensions? Okay, they are the how radical do we be, how much trouble do we make, how much do we make change from the inside, and how much do we make change from the outside. And so this is how change happens. Usually, you have two groups trying to make the change, the nice group and the scary group. And the nice group presents the change to the status quo powers that be, and they say, you need to make this change and deal with us, or you're going to have to deal with them. (laughs) And so Eleanor Gordon, who was one of the nice ones for a long time, um, like Mary... She became president of the Iowa Equal Suffrage Association and became uh, more militant. She would go to the polling places and throw down tables and make a ruckus and get arrested and that kind of thing. Uh, Mary, on the other hand, was sweet and lovable, and everyone um, joked that the Catholics and the Unitarians had one thing in common, that they worshipped the Virgin Mary. And in fact, it caused some trouble between Eleanor and Mary in that people liked Mary so much more than they liked Eleanor. And in fact, some of the things that Eleanor would say or write would get attributed to Mary, which is not cool. But they stayed working in tandem. Um, They had triumphs and they had tragedies. They had sorrows. Um, They didn't have much help after Jones left the scene. Their parishioners not only faced the regular frontier problems of sickness, poverty, and climate, but they were regarded as heretics by the other people in their towns. The Lutherans and Presbyterians and Methodists would boycott the Unitarian stores They were ostracized and persecuted. They were made object of scorn at public revivals. Um, And Garrison Keillor made terrible jokes about them. No, wait a minute, that's later. In 1870, there were only five female ministers in the United States. And by 1890, there were over 70. Of the 70 ordained women, the Universalists had the largest number, 32, and the Unitarians were next with 16, and the Methodists and Congregationalists combined for 15. So 
in some of the diaries of the people who served with them, it seemed that some of the um, other folks in the Unitarian and Universalist conferences felt that the women were taking over. Now, it's a sociological study that shows us that when the minority group, quote-unquote, gets to be at 20% of the majority group, the majority starts feeling like they are taking over. 20%. Mary Safford suffered a breakdown from exhaustion. Um, So she couldn't work for a little while. They were scorned in Boston, the, all the cool kids who were ministers in Boston um, were not, did not give the Iowa Sisterhood women very much respect. And especially later on after the First World War, there was a, an increasing kind of masculinization of the culture once the boys came back from the war. And... Um, the Unitarian Universalist Association was no different. They had a whole broadsheet kind of flyer advertising campaign where they advertised it as a virile religion. Um, I don't know how the women ministers felt about that. But then in the, uh, 1920, the women got the vote. And the... Um, They had to have some satisfaction from that, I would imagine. Although they found that all the pulpits that had been filled with women in the churches that they had built were suddenly now filled with uh, male ministers. Teddy Roosevelt, the Rough Rider, the cowboy, was um, the manly president. And, you know, not that there's anything wrong with manliness. It's wonderful. I'm the mother of two sons. It's just that when you have to feel that it's either or, it's kind of strange where you can't have a balance of maleness and femaleness in your culture, in your church, where it has to be one at the expense of the other, that if the women are getting strong, it means the men are weak, and when the men get strong again, it means the women have to be shoved to the side. Um, I don't really understand that. So Hamilton, uh, I mean, Safford and Gordon were together till the end. The last church that they founded was in Orlando, Florida. I guess they went there to retire. But this is how ministers retire. You know, you found another church. And they were, um, Gordon served as its minister from 1910 to 1927. And then now they're both buried in Hamilton, Iowa. Mary Stafford said that Her religion was a free religion, free from all doctrine, free from the irrational dogma that discouraged personal growth. And she held that the human soul would continue to evolve, not in an individual way, but in the community. So here's what I learned from these women. I learned that you have to have a team member. I learned that you have to have help. I learned that it helps if you hitch your star to somebody who's not going to blaze out. I learned that if you're in tandem, it's good if you don't care who gets the credit. 
If somebody mistakes something you said for something the other person said or something you did for something the other person did, it might need to be okay and not make tensions in your um, relationship. I learned that the Unitarian Association is not always on the forefront of social change. I learned that there's a lot of status quo people in the Unitarian Association from this time when uh, they were against too many women ministers. They didn't support women. They allowed them, but they didn't support them. They also allowed the um, abolitionists, but did not support them. I wish I could say the Unitarian Association was an abolitionist powerhouse, but it was not. So we at the grassroots are the ones that have to be the powerhouse. We at the grassroots are the ones that make the change. We team up. We get help from mentors who already have some status. If we have status ourselves by virtue of our schooling or our job, our wealth, our beauty, our charisma, whatever gives us status, we use it to be an ally to the powerless who are trying to make justice happen. And we let our souls evolve in community instead of all by ourselves in our living room, listening to our tapes of the Dalai Lama. We come out to the rough and tumble of church life and we do our best, right? Will you please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Bright morning stars are rising. Day is a breaking in my soul. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.